many developments in the news as far as science and technology are concerned, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence. That's making some big waves today. I don't know if you've heard about that chatbot, the chat GPT AI. It's been all over the place, all over the news. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But our first story here has to do with aging. Well, following from CNN Health, old mice grow young again in study. Can people do the same? In Boston Labs, old blind mice have regained their eyesight, developed smarter, younger brains, and built healthier muscle and kidney tissue. On the flip side, young mice have prematurely aged with devastating results to nearly every tissue in their bodies. The experiments show aging is a reversible process, capable of being driven forwards and backwards at will, said anti-aging expert David Sinclair, a professor of genetics in the Blavatnik Institute at Harvard Medical School and coordinator and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for Biology of Aging Research. Our bodies hold a backup copy of our youth that can be triggered to regenerate, said Sinclair, the senior author of a new paper showcasing the work of his lab and international scientists. The combination experiments published for the first time Thursday in the journal Cell challenge the scientific belief aging is the result of genetic mutations that undermine our DNA, creating a junkyard of damaged cellular tissue that can lead to deterioration, disease, and death. It's not junk, it's not damage that causes us to get old, said Sinclair, who described the work last year at Life Itself, a health and wellness event presented in partnership with CNN. We believe it's a loss of information, a loss in the cell's ability to read its original DNA so it forgets how to function, in much the same way our old computer may develop corrupted software. I call it the information theory of aging. Jay Yang, a genetics research fellow in the Sinclair lab who co-authored the paper, said he expects the findings will transform the way we view the process of aging and the way we approach the treatment of diseases associated with aging. Now, while DNA can be viewed as the body's hardware, the epigenome is the software. Epigenes are proteins and chemicals that sit like freckles on each gene, waiting to tell the gene what to do, where to do it, and when to do it, according to the National Human Genome Research Institute. The epigenome literally turns genes on and off. That process can be triggered by pollution, environmental toxins, and human behavior such as smoking, eating an inflammatory diet, or suffering a chronic lack of sleep. And just like a computer, the cellular process becomes corrupted as more DNA is broken or damaged, Sinclair said. The cells panic, and proteins that normally would control the genes get distracted by having to go and repair the DNA, he explained. Then they don't all find their way back to where they started, so over time it's like a ping-pong match, where the ball ends up all over the floor. In other words, the cellular pieces lose their way home, much like a person with Alzheimer's. Now, the astonishing finding is that there's a backup copy of the software in the body that you can reset, Sinclair said. We're showing why that software gets corrupted and how we can reboot the system by tapping into a reset switch that restores the cell's ability to read the genome correctly again, as if it were young. Doesn't matter if the body is 50 or 75, healthy or racked with disease, Sinclair said. Once that process has been triggered, the body will then remember how to regenerate and it will be young again, even if you are already old and have an illness. Now what the software is, we don't yet know. 
at this point, we just know that we can flip the switch. Now, what they're proposing here is that when we age, it's not a process that has to happen. It's not just a natural process of things, how the cells deteriorate and get damaged the older that we get and we're not as we don't have the ability to regenerate like we used to what they're saying here is that old way of looking at aging is incorrect they're saying that the cell loses its ability to read the original dna now they're saying that they can flip a switch and reverse aging so the hunt for the switch began when sinclair was a graduate student part of a team at the massachusetts institute of technology mit that discovered the existence of genes to control aging and yeast. That gene exists in all creatures. So there should be a way to do the same thing in people, he surmised. He began trying to fast-forward aging in mice without causing mutations or cancer. We started making that mouse when I was about 39 years old. I'm now 53. And we've been studying that mouse ever since, he said. If the theory of information aging was wrong, then we would get either a dead mouse, a normal mouse, an aging mouse, or a mouse that had cancer. We got aging. With the help of other scientists, Sinclair and his Harvard team have been able to age tissues in the brain, eyes, muscle, skin, and kidneys of mice. To do this, Sinclair's team developed ICE, short for Inducible Changes to the Epigenome. Instead of altering the coding sections of the mice's DNA, that can trigger mutations, ice alters the way the DNA is folded. The temporary fast healing cuts made by ice mimic the daily damage from chemicals, sunlight, and the like that contribute to aging. Ice mice at one year looked and acted twice their age. Now, they're trying to recreate the environmental conditions that age us. As I say here, the you know chemicals that we're exposed to on a daily basis, sunlight. So they were able to aged these mice prematurely. So now it was time to reverse the process. Now Sinclair lab geneticists Yan Chen Lu created a mixture of three of four Yamanacta factors, human adult skin cells that have been reprogrammed to behave like, like embryonic stem cells capable of developing into any cell in the body. The cocktail was injected into damaged retinal ganglion cells at the back of the eyes of blind mice and it was switched on by feeding mice antibiotics. The antibiotic is just a tool. It can be any chemical, really. It's just a way to be sure the three genes are switched on, Sinclair told CNN. Normally, they are only on in very young, developing embryos, and then turn off as we age. The mice regained most of their eyesight. Next, the team tackled brain, muscle, and kidney cells, and restored those to much younger levels, according to the study. One of our breakthroughs was to realize that if you use this particular set of three stem cells, the mice don't go back to age zero, which would cause cancer, or worse. Instead, the cells go back to between 50 to 75% of the original age, and they stop and don't get any younger, which is lucky. How the cells know how to do that, we don't understand yet. So they can't take these mice back to age zero. But if the mice, if the mouse happens to be three years old, they can take it back to about a year and a half, give or take. This is unbelievable technology. If they can do this in humans, that changes so much. Now today, Sinclair's team is trying to find a way to deliver the genetic switch evenly to each cell, thus rejuvenating the entire mouse at once. Now delivery is a technical hurdle, but other groups seem to have done well. 
Sinclair said, pointing to two unpublished studies that appear to have overcome the problem. One uses the same system we developed to treat very old mice, the equivalent of an 80-year-old human, and they still got the mice to live longer, which is remarkable. So they've kind of beaten us to the punch in that experiment, he said. But that says to me that rejuvenation is not just affecting a few organs, it's able to rejuvenate the whole mouse, because they're living longer, he added. The results are a gift and confirmation of what our paper is saying. What's next? Billions of dollars are being poured into anti-aging, funding all sorts of methods to turn back the clock. In his lab, Sinclair said his team has reset the cells in mice multiple times, showing that aging can be reversed more than once, and he is currently testing the genetic reset in primates. But decades could pass before any anti-aging clinical trials in humans begin, get analyzed, and, if safe and successful, scaled to the mass needed for federal approval. But just as damaging factors can disrupt the epigenome, healthy behaviors can repair it, Sinclair said. We know this is probably true because people have, who have lived a healthy lifestyle have less biological age than those who have done the opposite, he said. His top tips? Focus on plants for food, eat less often, and get sufficient sleep. Exercise to maintain your muscle mass, don't sweat all the small stuff, and have a good social group. The message is every day counts. How you live your life, even when you're in your teens and 20s, really matters even decades later, because every day your clock is ticking. So what do you think about this? Do you think it's a, you think this is great technology? Do you think this is something that we will eventually achieve? Would you be interested in getting this treatment, whatever it happens to come down to when they test this? Now, remember, this has only been tested on mice. They have been able to do these things in mice, which, by the way, that's remarkable just in and of itself, but they still have to move the research over to primates and then eventually humans. But again, like they say in this article, it could be several decades before they get there. I want to know what you think about this. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. My email address is info at scienceanimated.net. I want to know what you think about this story or anything I cover here on The S Factor. This is a pre-recorded show, but I do receive emails and reply back. So if you have a question or comment, be sure to send me an email. Also, you can reach out to me on Facebook.com slash Science Animated, Twitter.com slash Science Animated, and also YouTube.com slash Science Animated Education if you want to watch family-friendly educational videos. I mean, anyone can learn from these videos. It doesn't have to be the very young. It can be anyone. Be sure to check those out, ScienceAnimated.net. This next story really piqued my interest when I saw it because it's so different. The following from Wired, electronic second skins are the wearables of the future. The skin is the largest organ of the body, and also the most complex. Oh, and by the way, I have an animation all about the human skin at scienceanimated.net. Check that out. Of course, it's also YouTube, youtube.com slash scienceanimatededucation. Back to the skin here. You peer at it under a microscope and you see thousands of nerve endings that could keep the brain connected to the outside world and allow us to feel touch, pressure, and pain. But when Zena and Bo looks at it, she sees something else. For Bo, the chemical engineer focused on making polymers, the skin is not only a sensory organ, but also a material. One that, in her words, is flexible, but also stretchable, self-healing, and biodegradable. Bo works in the emerging field of electronic skin and has made it her mission to recreate the many functions of human skin for use in prosthetics and robotics. For people who wear artificial limbs, a sense of touch would immeasurably improve their quality of life. 
enabling them to distinguish soft from hard and to notice the dangerously sharp or the scalding hot before they can do any damage. When Bo joined Stanford University in 2004, a few researchers were working on flexible sensors that could be wrapped around an artificial hand to mimic the sense of touch. And Bo's previous experience with flexible displays would prove useful. By 2010, Bo and her colleagues have developed a flexible sensor, sensor so sensitive that it could detect the touch of an alighting butterfly. Our current electronics are very rigid, brittle, and bulky, she says. But if we can make them all like skin, then that could potentially completely change how humans interact and interface with electronics. Our skin, which forms a natural protective barrier against the environment, could also serve as an interface between humans and devices. In addition to robotics and prostheses, both sees potential applications for electronic skin or e-skin in the field of wearables. Imagine a device that is worn on the body like a second skin and uses sensors that accurately measure blood pressure, temperature, or glucose and oxygen levels in real time. There's a lot of interest for wearables that go beyond just measuring how many steps we walk each day or the heart rate. Now, you see, I don't know if you may have a Fitbit or one of these devices, these watches that measure your heartbeat and how many steps you've taken, and you can actually create goals uh, to meet with those devices and those applications. And it seems like, well, just like our phone, our smartphone is constantly with us. What's really the next step? You know, we talk, we've talked at length about Elon Musk and Neuralink, how he wants to connect us to our, to the, wire us up directly to the internet. There would be no need for a phone. And that would just be one of the applications of use for Neuralink. But when it comes to something like this, let's say you don't want an implant. This second skin, this e-skin, as they're talking about here in this Wired article, could be the next step without being too intrusive and going inside of our bodies with the electronic device. I mean, this could have applications for the next shift in smartphone technology. This e-skin, you wear it. It could your phone could be on your arm. You just look down there instead of holding it in your hand, and you can watch videos on it and things of that nature. That's probably where we're heading next with this stuff. But uh, very interesting here. Now, one invention coming out of a Bosel Research Lab at Stanford could be manufactured and clinically tested in the next few years. The Silicon Valley startup Pyrames, which Bo co-founded, is developing a soft band that wraps around a wrist or foot and could be used to monitor the blood pressure of premature babies in intensive care units. It is designed to record blood flow continuously like an arterial line typically does without the need for needles that carry the risk of infection, tissue, and nerve damage. The band is then wirelessly paired with a tablet to monitor blood pressure changes in real time. For such applications, the electronics must be stretchable and flexible from the onset. Bo's team of researchers have taken a molecular approach to designing organic polymers with this in mind. Polymer is a large molecule made up of many repeating mammometers linked together like a long chain of paper clips. By changing the structure of these monomers, researchers can make the material stretchable and shape it to fit onto or even inside the human body. If you're just joining us here on the S Factor, what I'm talking about here is this wearable skin, an e-skin that they're working on developing. Now, the researcher Bo has been working on skin-inspired electronics for a number of years. Since 2018, she has served as chair of Stanford's Department of Chemical Engineering, and she founded the, and directs the Stanford Wearable Electronics Initiative. Acronym is eWear. 
a university-wide program that brings together scientists working in materials, electronics, systems, data, and medical sciences, and connects them with industry. Now, Bo herself already has more than 100 U.S. patents, including one for the butterfly-detecting sensor. Bo and her colleagues at Stanford are also working on polymer materials for displays that can stretch, fold, and even crumble. In March 2022, after more than three years of work, they published in the journal Nature a proof of principle for a light-emitting polymer that glows like a filament in a light bulb. The researchers demonstrated that this device can be worn on the knuckle of a finger and stretched to twice its length without tearing. This is a stretchable version, which can deform and change shape, says Bo. The prototype can only show a static low-resolution image, but it can lay the foundation for future body-worn electronics that measure and display vital signs. There are many potential applications for electronic skin, says Bo, but the road to commercialization is long. Still, she is driven by the idea of developing electronics that could benefit medical diagnosis and healthcare in the long run, be it in the form of prosthetics, wearables, or even implantable devices. Her attention is focused on the small steps and successes of her research team in developing individual building blocks, sensors, circuits, and the flexible, stretchy, and biodegradable materials that make them up. In order for the field to be able to evolve and have a long-term trajectory, we also need to be able to show that we can make an impact in the near future. Now, this technology is going to have wide-ranging effects. Not just us wearing this second skin and it mimicking a device like a smartphone, but we're wearing it. But as they mention here, putting a skin on a prosthetic. So if someone has an artificial limb, this electronic skin can encase that and there's sensors on it. And, and those people will be able to get have the sense of touch replicated from that second skin being on that prosthetic. It, this is amazing technology. That's what the S-Factor is all about, bringing this kind of news to you, this exciting, interesting news to you each and every month right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. There has been so much talk, as I stated at the beginning of the show, about AI, and specifically speaking, this chatbot, this AI chatbot, chat GPT. Following from Popular Mechanics, humanity may reach singularity within just seven years. In the world of artificial intelligence, the idea of singularity looms large. This slippery concept describes the moment AI exceeds beyond human control and rapidly transforms society. Tricky thing about AI singularity is it's enormously difficult to predict where it begins and nearly impossible to know what's beyond this technological event horizon. However, some AI researchers are on the hunt for signs of reaching singularity measured by AI progress approaching the skills and ability comparable to a human. One such metric, defined by Translated, a Rome-based translation company, is an AI's ability to translate speech at the accuracy of a human. Language is one of the most difficult AI challenges, but a computer that could close that gap, could theoretically show signs of artificial general intelligence, or otherwise known as AGI. That's because language is the most natural thing for humans, translated CEO Marco Trombetti said at a conference in Orlando, Florida, last month. Nonetheless, the data translated collected clearly shows that machines are not that far from closing the gap. company tracked its AI's performance from 2014 to 2022, 
using a metric called time to edit, or TTE, which calculates the time it takes for professional human editors to fix AI-generated translations compared to human ones. Over that eight-year period, and analyzing over two billion post-edits, Translated's AI showed a slow but undeniable improvement as it slowly closed the gaps towards human-level translation quality. On average, it takes a human translator roughly one second to edit each word of another human translator, according to Translated. In 2015, it took professional editors approximately three and a half seconds per word to check a machine-translated suggestion. Today, that number is just two seconds. The trial, if the trend continues, Translated's AI will be as good as human-produced translation by the end of the decade, or even sooner. The change is so small that every single day you don't perceive it. But when you see progress across 10 years, that's impressive. That's what Trambodi said on a podcast in December. This is the first time ever that someone in the field of artificial intelligence did a prediction of the speed to singularity. Although this is a novel approach to quantifying how close humanity is to approaching singularity, this definition of singularity runs into similar problems of identifying AGI more broadly. Although perfecting human speech is certainly a frontier for NAI research, the impressive skill doesn't necessarily make a machine intelligent, not to mention many researchers don't even agree on what intelligent is. Whether these hyper-accurate translators are harbingers of our technological doom or not, that doesn't lessen Translated's AI accomplishment. An AI capable of translating speech as well as human could very well change society, even if the true technological singularity remains elusive. Now, what they're talking about here in this article from Popular Mechanics is that the singularity will be achieved when the speed and accuracy of the AI is comparable to a human. One of my favorite shows of all time, Star Trek, all their technology that we see slowly coming to light in these years here, especially with the smartphone becoming like the communicator in Star Trek. They used a translator on Star Trek that it was so crisp and was so perfect that they could speak to alien civilizations with this translator and not miss a beat. It wasn't like there was no loading time. There was no buffering. There was no processing time. And of course, that's science fiction, but if they perfect this kind of technology, there will be no language barriers at all using technology. I mean, sometimes I'll use Google Translate, and that's pretty good. But incorporating AI into something like that, almost in real time, you're getting that translation from that, and you understand what this person that's speaking another language is saying. Now, as far as chat GPT is concerned, you can use that process. For free, ask it any question you'd like to ask it. It responds to you as if it is a human speaking back to you. And that's what people are so mesmerized by. Also, educators are kind of worried about it because people could cheat on tests with that thing, you know, with with technology like that. People want to write blogs with it. So Google is developing a way to trace if it is an artificially, an artificial intelligence responding or writing that blog. So they're going to develop tools that can identify if the AI is doing this. And that's how institutions are going to stop plagiarism. That's how they're going to stop cheating at the university level. There are flags being raised on the field. There are flags being thrown on the field here. 
to combat the AI. But we're just at the beginning of this, folks. We really are. We've never been confronted with a question like this before. We've never been confronted with technology that could become so powerful ever in our existence. It's unbelievable. If you have any question or comment about AI, there are no phone calls on the show because it's pre-recorded, but I would love for you to reach out to me. I love getting emails. You can send me an email at info at scienceanimated.net, info at scienceanimated.net, and I'd like you to answer this question. Yes to AI or no? I've gotten some really interesting responses to that question in the past. So where, what do you think about all this AI technology? Is it good for humanity overall or is it bad? I could give you a random list of positives and negatives off the top of my head. I want to know what you think about it. Send me a message at info at scienceanimated.net. One other movie I loved watching growing up, aside from Star Trek, was I was a big Terminator 2 fan when I was in grade school. I loved that movie. And one of the coolest effects, one of the coolest visual effects ever created on film at that time was this Terminator that could shapeshift. So in other words, he was like, he could become liquid and, and reform himself. He could get out of any kind of predicament that he may have been in. If he was in a you know, some kind of a cage or locked up somewhere, he could melt, slither through whatever the smallest kind of crack that he could find and rebuild himself on the other side of that obstacle. Well, now scientists have actually done something like that with a material. Real-life Terminator 2 robot can melt to escape jail, then solidify on command. The following from Live Science. To make the phase-shifting robot, scientists embedded microscopic chunks of magnetic neodymium, boron, and iron into liquid gallium, a metal with a low melting point, and left it to solidify. And just like the spine-chilling T-1000 from Terminator 2... The robot has shape-shifting abilities that can make it an excellent escape artist. By using magnets com to command their miniature creation to melt, the researchers recorded the robot transforming into an amorphous puddle to slither through the bars of a cage before miraculously reconstituting itself on the other side. The researchers published their findings in the journal Matter. And if you want to see a quick gif of this, go to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash science animated I actually have a post up on this where you can see it's a real quick gif but it shows you the footage where this thing actually melted down went through the bars and reconstituted on the other side it's unbelievable you have to check it out facebook.com slash science animated now to perform this melting trick the researchers heated the bot through a process known as magnetic induction using a moving magnet to set up an electrical current inside the robot. The current melted the gallium, and a magnetic element suspended inside caused it to be drawn toward the magnet. The magnetic particles here have two roles. Senior author Carmel Majidi, a mechanical engineer at Car Carnegie Mellon University, said in a statement, one is that they make the material responsive to an alternating magnetic field. So you can, through induction, heat up the material and cause the phase change. But the magnetic particles also give the robots mobility and the ability to move in response to the magnetic field. The researchers said the inspiration for the device came from sea cucumbers, which have been observed switching between soft and stiff states to protect themselves from the environment and increase the weight that they carry. 
The researchers see several potential medical and technological applications for the robot. So far, it has passed multiple tests, fixing circuits by entering tough-to-reach spots and then transforming itself into solder, melting into a screw socket, and then solidifying to become a mechanical screw and removing a foreign object from a model stomach. Giving robots the ability to switch between liquid and solid states endows them with more functionality. Lead author Chen Fen Pan, an engineer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, said in a statement, Now we're pushing this material system in more practical ways to solve some very specific medical and engineering problems. Again, check this video out. It is really, it is really something to see. Facebook.com slash science animated. And just a quick content note. I have some new stuff on the horizon coming to the YouTube channel. So if, if you don't happen to follow the YouTube channel, you'll know about any new animation that I put out there because I use social media like Facebook and Twitter to let that be known out there. So if you, if you check out the Facebook page, if you like it, I've got a lot of followers on the Facebook page. It's been growing exponentially, which I thank you for that. But if you want to check out the Facebook page, you can do that and it will alert you. I will alert you of new educational content as it's being produced. I've got a lot of irons in the fire right now as far as content goes. So be on the lookout for that. And you'll know through the, uh, if you follow me through Facebook and Twitter, I will alert you through those channels to let you know when new science animated content is up. Speaking of science animated content, I have a really awesome animation up on photosynthesis. How it happens why it's so important for our plants. And you can check that out on the YouTube channel now. And speaking of the very important photosynthesis, scientists have developed a living biosolar cell that could run on photosynthesis. Plants are often thought of as sources of food, oxygen, and decoration, but not as a source of electricity. However, scientists have discovered that by harnessing the nat natural transport of electrons within plant cells, it is possible to generate electricity as part of a green biological solar cell. In a recent study published in ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces, researchers for the first time used a succulent plant to create a living biosolar cell that runs on photosynthesis. The electrons are naturally transported as part of a biological process in all living cells, from bacteria and fungi to plants and animals, by introducing electrodes, the cells can be utilized to generate electricity that can be used externally. Previous research has created fuel cells using bacteria, but it required constant feeding. This new approach uses photosynthesis, the process by which plants convert light energy into chemical energy to generate current. During this process, light drives a flow of electrons from water that ultimately results in a generation of oxygen and sugar. That means that living photosynthetic cells are constantly producing a flow of electrons that can be pulled away as a photocurrent and used to power an external circuit, such as a solar cell. Now, certain plants, like the succulents found in arid environments, have thick cuticles to keep fresh, to keep water and nutrients within their leaves. They wanted to test for the first time whether photosynthesis in succulents could create power for living solar cells using their internal water and nutrients as the electrolyte solution of a electrochemical cell. So there are many times on the S-Factor here I talk about alternative energy and how we're on the quest to find an alternative to oil. It's going to take some time to do that. 
We use oil for so much, and our economy, our modern way of life depends on having that. So getting off of it would be great for the environment, but it's going to take time. So they're developing all these different ways. We have so many great researchers and scientists trying to figure out a way to do this. On a previous month's show, I talk about the high energy beam. That is capturing the sun's heat, transferring it down here to Earth and getting free. And that would be totally free energy that way. If you want to check that show out, go to your favorite podcasting service and type in the S-Factor podcast. You'll see a listed there. Or go to scienceanimated.net and I have all the podcasts list, uh, listed there as well. But we are on this constant search for alternative energy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we can't stop. You know, we just can't turn a tap off of oil like overnight right away. It's not reasonable. It's not really feasible for us to do that. But there's nothing wrong with looking at these alternatives and seeing what does look promising for our future with energy. There has been a lot of talk, if not a little concern, about the Earth's inner core. So I want to talk about that here a little bit. Following from Scientific American, why Earth's inner core may be slowing down. The spin of Earth's inner core may have slowed, with the heart of the planet now rotating at a slightly more sluggish clip than the layers above, new research finds. The slowdown could change how rapidly the entire planet spins, as well as influence how the core evolves with time. For the new study published in journal Nature Geoscience, scientists used a database of earthquakes to probe the behavior of Earth's solid inner core over time. The inner core sits suspended like a ball bearing in the molten metal ocean of the outer core. Because of this liquid cocoon, the ball bearing may not spin at the same rate as the rest of the planet. Over the years, some researchers have found that the core rotates slightly faster than the mantle and crust a condition called superrotation, but studies have not returned consistent numbers, with the first study to observe differential core rotation, estimating the inner core rotates up to one degree faster per year than the rest of the planet. Others found an annual speedup of just tiny fractions of a degree. These differences aren't dramatic. The variation in rotation time between the inner core and the rest of Earth is very minor nor are the differences a threat to life on the surface. In contrast to the 2003 science fiction movie The Core, there's no need to call in a crack team of geophysicists and astronauts to drill to the center of our planet and start blowing things up. At most, the inner core rotation might influence Earth's overall spin and contribute to fluctuations in the planet's magnetic field. Each year, the core expands by about a millimeter, as some of the molten iron in the outer core solidifies, seismic studies have shown. The solidification also drives the circulation of the outer core, which in turn creates the planet's magnetic field. The rotation of the inner core could influence this solidification process in ways that are not yet fully understood, thus impacting the magnetic field, says study author Ziedon Song, a geophysicist at Peking University in China. The rotation might also matter for how the inner core grows over billions of years, says John Vidal, a geophysicist at the University of Southern California who was not involved in the study but who has researched core rotation. The catch, however, is that no one really knows how fast the inner core spins. In a new study, Song and geophysicist Yi Yang, also at Peking University, found that the core appeared to hold a steady spin faster than the overall spin of Earth 
between the 1970s and the early 2000s. Around 2009, though, that spin rather abruptly slowed to match Earth's speed, and then perhaps slowed so much that the rest of the planet now spins faster, Song says. Song and Yang measured the spin by using pairs of almost identical earthquakes that originated at the same spots, separated only by time. Because the quakes are nearly identical, their shock waves should also look identical when they travel through the core and back out, where they are detected by seismometers around the planet. That is, unless the core itself changes and alters the path of one earthquake's waves relative to the other. The core is spinning differently than the rest of the planet. Identical earthquake waves that happen months or years apart will hit the core at slightly different spots and therefore bounce back with some subtle differences. The researchers compared quake waves going back to 1964 to track the changes in how the core might be moving over time. If they're right, the spin of the core now lags that of the overall planet by a tiny amount. The new findings likely won't end the debate over the inner core. The work is well done and does an admirable job of combining different data, Vidal says, but there are several competing explanations for what's going on. For example, Vidal's research hints that the core may alter its rotation every six years or so, while researchers Pang and Koper report a single lurch in the early 2000s and little change since the 2022 study. Fortunately, Song says the seismic monitoring of Earth is better than ever, yielding far richer data about the planet's interior than in earlier decades. By continuing to watch the earthquake waves, the researchers should be able to show whether they're right about the inner core's spin. So good news here, folks. According to the researchers, we don't have anything to worry about here on the surface when it comes to this change in the rotation of the inner core. Well, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you for listening to The S Factor. It's such a pleasure for me to bring you this broadcast every month, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And if you don't get enough of the show when you listen to me here, you can always check me out in podcast form on your favorite podcast service. Just type in The S Factor Podcast on a Google search. I'll pop right up. You can do a search like that on your favorite podcasting service, and I'll come right up. You can also check out scienceanimated.net for free educational content that's family-friendly, super interesting, and if you want to help support the show, Science Animated Human Body is available as a DVD or a digital stream. Now, if you buy the stream, it's a little bit cheaper, and you can watch it right on YouTube. Anytime on your phone, really easy to watch it. You could cast it to your television. A lot of people love the stream option, although there are some diehards that are still buying the DVD. Very inexpensive, way cheaper than your average lunch, I would say today. And I have not increased the prices due to any kind of inflation. My prices are the same. And I hope you check that out. It's a great 40-minute DVD. It's a great 40-minute stream. Family-friendly, entertaining, explosive action. That's Science Animated, The Human Body, available at scienceanimated.net. That would help support the show. Of course, liking any of the social media channels that I'm on, facebook.com slash scienceanimated, twitter.com slash scienceanimated. I'm on TikTok, at scienceanimated. And of course, the best way to track what I'm doing animation-wise is youtube.com slash scienceanimatededucation. Until next time, folks, be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer of The S Factor. 
brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. I'll see you next time, everybody.